A reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we rejoin Jesus for this second instalment of his sermon. Once again, let's get back into the sort of the the sandals of Jesus, so to speak. Picture the crowds. We've got the disciples in the front row sort of listening eagerly, and then hundreds, potentially thousands, um, listening in to what Jesus has to say. And I think what stands out in this instalment is what Jesus says will happen if you take his words seriously. You couldn't make it up. Persecutors. Three times. Just um, look down at the text. Verse 10, persecuted. Verse 11, persecuted. Verse 12, persecuted. I think it's almost unbelievable that Jesus would explain that a life following him, remember he's, he's selling the new religion, so to speak, to use worldly language. He's commissioning the new people and he says, follow me and be persecuted. Quite literally, come and follow me, says Jesus, and lots of people will swear at you. Lots of people will speak evil about you. Oh, and by the way, you'll be falsely accused. You ready to sign up? I mean, it's quite an interesting way to recruit new people, isn't it? If you've ever read the book um, Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice, uh, you'll know he sums it up very well. Take the words of Jesus seriously, take them out to the world around, and one thing will happen, you'll get hit. It's a very simple sort of mantra in the book. If you haven't read it, I'd really commend it. Um, Honest Evangelism is called by Rico Tice. Take the words of Jesus out to the world, and people will hit you. Socially, emotionally, reputationally, will be damaged. Um, of course, there are parts of the world, even today, where physical uh, persecution takes place. These things go hand in hand with the Christian life. And that seems to be somewhat ironic, given that Jesus is once again promising the repeated refrain, blessing, blessing, blessing. Five times, in fact, in our passage today we get it. Clear instruction on how to be blessed. And as I said um, earlier on, you know, blessing, human flourishing, to be blessed means to be on the best possible path in life. You want life to go really well for you, says Jesus. Follow this teaching. And so it seems somewhat ironic that that should culminate in a life of persecution. 
Um, you can see the real tension as we start. John Calvin, uh, a well-known Christian writer and um, just a, a big writer after the Reformation, he puts it like this. Um, he says, the happy man, lots of us, even Christian, mature Christian believers hold on to this error, that the happy man is somebody who is free from annoyance, attains all his wishes, and leads a joyful and easy life. And I tell you, that is absolutely my default setting. I genuinely think that I will be most happy if I have all the areas of agitation and annoyance um, sort of removed. So you guys are at Lions Down, one of the things, the repeated refrain I've heard a few times from different people is, um, you know, building envy. You come to a place like this and there's real building envy. And, um, and we think, you know, remove these sort of agitations and annoyances and the more serious stuff too, and we'll be happy. And actually, um, the, the, the opposite teaching is true here. Here's what Calvin says on all of this. The only consolation which mitigates, even sweetens the bitterness of all persecutions, hardships, trials, that sort of thing, is the conviction that we are happy in the midst of misery. So that's the challenge as we um, draw to lunch, as we think about burgers and chips and fish and chips and all of that sort of thing. It just um, minutes away. There is the challenge, being prepared to accept that the best possible path in life, the life to real blessedness and flourishing and happiness, is the life of persecution. Well, this morning, earlier on, we looked at the disciples' attitude, first, verses 3 to 6. Um, now we have the disciples' conduct, verses 7 to 12, and you'll see the two points there in the handout. Firstly, the conduct that Jesus expects from his people. Have a look at the words that Jesus uh, expects his followers to put into practice. Verse 7, merciful. Verse 8, pure in heart. Verse 9, peacemakers. The new people are called to a radical, counter-cultural way of life characterised by these standards. Mercy, purity, peace, um, as you can see. I think it's easy at this point to sort of see why, as some people read the Sermon on the Mount, they get quite confused about how it is you become a Christian. And they wrongly think that the way into the Christian life is a way of conduct. So I've tried to sort of lay out on the handout there um, what I think is going on, what Jesus expects. Um, and it can take some time, as we've just heard. It might take 10 years for us to you know, really absorb the, um, the seriousness of this stuff. Well, firstly, the impossibility of the standard. You see, in the first instance, as we touched on earlier today, each of these statements of conduct is an impossible standard. Jesus asks us to do something which, after a moment's careful reflection, we'll see, is impossible. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. Now, to give um, somebody mercy means not giving something um, to somebody that they deserve. So to, to give mercy means to hold back. And Jesus says, um, we are to be people who show mercy. And Jesus doesn't say, look, from time to time, um, once you're a Christian believer, do your absolute best to show a bit of mercy. You know, just, you know you'll, you'll, you'll sort of, won't do it sometimes, but do your best most of the time to try and do it. Jesus says, let your life be a merciful life. <coughs> let that be an area of conduct which defines your life. And if we actually take on board the seriousness of that, we'll see that it's impossible. Why is it impossible? Well, just think what goes through your head um, at different times of confrontation and conversation. 
simple reality is we're far too quick to tell people what we really think about them. And even if the words don't come out of our mouths, they often go through our head. We hear something said about us and we respond in our mind in a way that is very unmerciful. Verbal or social retaliation of some sort. Showing mercy actually is an almost impossible standard. I'm sort of wired to, my default setting is to um, stand up for myself and to have my own back and that will come out of my mouth sometimes. We don't show mercy, we don't hold back. Um, Let's just think of the next one. I mean, blessed are the pure in heart, 5 verse 8. To be pure in heart means um, somebody who loves God, serves God, puts others first, always puts um, self down. Someone who's devoted to God in everything, free from the tyranny of a divided self. Wouldn't that be amazing? Jesus says, be that person, free from the tyranny of any type of hypocrisy, never double-minded, always single-hearted devotion, pure. One commentator puts it like this, purity of heart begins on the inside. There is no space for inward sham, deceit, or moral filth. So do you see the impossibility of the standard? You can't do it. Jesus is sort of drawing in the crowd, let me tell you the standards that you can't do. It makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? And um, however many decades you've been a Christian, however long it's gone on for, I think I've been a Christian for a number of decades now. And I've become more, not less, aware of my inability in God's sight. It's not like, you know, some people think as they look into the Christian life, oh, you must be, you know, you must be much more sort of um, acceptable and pleasing to God now. I'm just aware of the growing chasm between God and me. And that is a wonderful, wonderful gift, of course, to make me more dependent. It drives me to Jesus. That's what this sermon will do. It drives you to your knees before Jesus. The impossibility of the standard sorrow. I just can't do this. But remember, of course, Remember what this then achieves, because having been driven to our knees, it's not like we just sort of walk off and go and do our own thing. The standard then begins to make sense, fully dependent on Jesus. I can start to display the standard in my life. And what a privilege. What a privilege it is, as somebody depending on Jesus, to think about what these standards mean in practice. And not just a privilege, but a responsibility. I belong to God now. I'm one of his children. Look at verse 10. I am a member of his family, sons of God. You won't be surprised, of course, that sons of God, new family membership, requires new family attitude, responsibilities and conduct in a way that stands out as distinct in this world. And so Jesus is saying, if you're one of mine, I mean, be somebody who is characterized by this quality of mercy, this quality of purity of heart. Be a peacemaker. I was on a business trip once uh, to a part of the world uh, that had a lot of poverty, somewhere in North Africa. Um, I was on a business trip. This is, I say business. This was before I went into church work. I did 10 years um, sort of in and around the city. And um, I, was, I was there. I was being sort of shown around. And I got taken to a market. It was a very interesting sort of experience all sorts of levels. And I, I was with a, with a client who was sort of taking me in. Um, much to his embarrassment, um, there was a group, big group of children sort of descended upon us at that point. I thought it was, you know, it was fascinating and 
chatting away. And while I was chatting away to um, a little group of children here, another child, I was obviously being distracted by this group, another child had managed to get the, um, his hand into my pocket. And, um, and it was amazing, sort of light-handed, sort of obviously very sort of tried and tested, managed to actually get hold of a note, um, a, a dollar bill or something in, inside it and pulled it out. And I, I grabbed this, this child's hand and, and just looked, looked at him. My, the, the client that I was with was, was really devastated. You know, I was so ashamed you come to my country and this happens. I said, look, it, it's, it's fine. And the client insisted, he said, you must call the police. This is not acceptable. We must have justice. This child must be punished. I felt sorry for the little chap. I mean, he was a scrap of a kid and, you know, he's obviously hungry and he had all of his mates who he was sort of letting down by getting caught. Um, I felt really sorry. I tried to sort of diffuse the whole thing and I said, oh, look, really, really don't worry. I, look, I quite understand. And I, I moved things on very quickly so that I didn't get the police involved. I wanted to show mercy to the child. I was thinking, you know, I'm not sure how much of this connected, but as I look back, you know, my Lord God has given me mercy. Why shouldn't I show mercy to this little child? And I said to the little child, look, there's a group of American tourists over there. Why don't you go up and have a word with them? <laughs> and um, that certainly distracted everyone. And so, yeah, sorry if you're American, okay? You <laughs> but um, that, that, is a, you know, that, that is a right thing to do. And, and put like that, of course, showing mercy in our world, um, it's compelling. It's attractive. It's not always appropriate. I, I'm not suggesting we should always let people off. I can think of another situation where I saw a car being stolen right outside my house. I called the police and the policeman came and caught the guy with a screwdriver trying to break in. It was right not to show mercy. You know, it's right that we do uh, bring um, right sort of force of the law if we have opportunity like that. But nevertheless, from time to time, showing mercy is exactly the right thing. But I don't think that that's where Jesus wants us to stop. Imagine if that was all that Jesus was doing. I mean, it cannot possibly be the extent of what he is asking us to model. Yes, go this far and be that sort of person that is a peacemaker or, or shows mercy. Yes, that must be right. But if that was all, then why would he suggest that's going to lead to persecution? Can you ever think of a situation where people are going to give you a hard time for being a peacemaker? It's pretty rare, isn't it? Hard time for being merciful. You see, persecution is unlikely to happen on the back of points A and B. Jesus intends us to be those who explain the standards to the world. And that's you'll see that point C, explaining the standard to the world. Jesus wants us to be passionate about explaining the truths that he is teaching to others. This becomes more and more explicit. We'll see it after lunch um, very explicitly. But even now, it must be there and implied. Because in the end, my public example will not be what earns um, persecution. Uh, Mariano was really helpful just now in the way he, he said he'd been part of a church and hearing um, sort of lots of teaching from the Bible, but that the church, uh, I think the, the word, I just jotted it down, he said it was so, there was so much social action going on that it clouded the Bible teaching. I think that was what you were saying, which is really interesting, isn't it? As we get engaged in our sort of public um, profile to the community. The community love it. Tim Keller in Redeemer um, was really, really big on this. He, he said, you know, that the world embraces um, Christians who, who act publicly with social responsibility. The world loves it. The world doesn't persecute you for that. Jesus can't mean that that's the end goal of being a Christian. That can't be right. To show mercy must be to speak about Jesus. You see, I can spare the child from the 
punishment of the local police force. But that is a dim reality compared to sparing a, a colleague from the wrath of God as I explain the gospel. Do you see the difference? Mercy means to explain the mercy that's available from God. If I'm going to be a, a true man of mercy, I must explain the mercy that's available from God our Father. Blessed are the merciful. To be pure in heart must mean to explain to others how they can be pure of heart. You can't do it yourself. The only way is to come to Jesus. To be a peacemaker. It must not primarily be about the horizontal. It must be about vertical peace, mustn't it? Peace with God. Any sort of horizontal peace, which is rare in our world. When churches, or indeed Christians, take the focus off speaking the gospel and put it on political or social or cultural engagement, they lose the very purpose for which they exist. They cloud the very thing that people most need. Every Christian has a priority to engage in gospel ministry, speaking about Jesus. And what happens? Well, Wonderfully, as that happens, of course, some people will engage with that. Some people will become Christians. Absolutely. But that's not what Jesus goes on to here. He doesn't go on and say, and there will be great fruit, and people will become disciples and follow. He doesn't say that. He says, you'll be persecuted. And that, you'll see that in the second point there, the persecution we should expect from the world. Why? Why? Well, generally, because the world loves itself and hates Jesus. It's always been that way. And it continues to be that way. And so those who follow Jesus should expect persecution. The structure and grammar of this verse really helps us to appreciate that. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then verse 11 and 12, Jesus goes on and expands that idea even further. It's like Jesus is saying, this proposition that you're going to be persecuted is so important that I'm going to explain it again in verse 11 and in verse 12. So have a look again in verse 11. Jesus switches to the second person. He says, you, you will be persecuted. You can almost imagine he makes eye contact at this point with various people sort of in the front row. Remember, the disciples are in the front row. You can almost imagine him making eye contact. You will be persecuted as you take the gospel out. If you take the gospel, they will revile you and persecute you, all kinds of evil against you. I read the story the other day of uh, uh, a man, true story, um, it was published by a Christian charity called Open Doors, which I'm sure many of you will be familiar with. And Open Doors is a great organisation. It, it exists to help Christians in our world who are facing persecution. And this particular individual was a Saudi convert, Christian now, used to be a Muslim. And he said this, it is unnatural, maybe even wrong, to keep one's love for Jesus to oneself. But if I speak to others about Jesus, I'm dead. Now, <coughs> David Curry is the CEO of this charity, Open Doors. And he says this kind of oppression is not always the case. Persecution looks different in every country. And he thinks persecution should very broadly be split into two frameworks, the smash and the squeeze. <coughs> the smash. He says the smash is violence against Christians. That's true for our brother who is facing this persecution in Saudi. I mean, he's alive now. This is a, a current situation if he is still alive. 
Um, and it's certainly been true down through the ages, hasn't it? Uh, the Nicene Council put together an important creed. Um, do you see, where's Rich? Is he, um, do you guys, you, you probably know Mark, do you use the, um, the Nicene Creed from yeah. time to time? It's that, those famous words, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, um, of all that is seen and unseen. It was put together in the fourth century AD by a group of Christians. It was an amazing gathering. 318 delegates came together and said, look, we're so determined that we have a clear statement of the Christian faith, where when Christians come together, they can publicly proclaim what they believe. There's all sorts of heresy going on at the time, and they just wanted a sort of a clear sort of vision and purpose that sort of summed everything up. The fascinating thing was, though, out of the 318 delegates who gathered to contribute to um, this creed, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye or hand or did not limp on a leg lamed by torture for being a Christian. Isn't that amazing? Over 300 of them had been severely tortured for being a Christian back in that time, 4th century. Persecution is a real experience of our family and it will happen from time to time, Rico's expression. You be a Christian publicly, you'll get hit. In reality, the type of persecution that most of us will face in our day, in our age, with the social setting that we're in, is the squeeze. A government, a culture, a family, an HR department that makes life difficult for Christians. And I think the main problem for us today will be the temptation, the pressure, just to keep your head down and your mouth shut. Oh, it's fine if you retreat to your own sort of sacred building. Sorry. Didn't mean to mention that. It's fine if you retreat. It's fine if you retreat to your own sort of private gathering. Public prayer, rather not. Private prayer, you go and join the others in the prayer room, whatever it is at work. But send an email to the whole office. Suggest that everyone might like to engage in a Christianity explored. And you'll soon get a call from HR. Most do. It's pretty rare. If you put your head above the parapet you'll get shut down. The squeeze, it forces us just to stay quiet. It's so much easier. We play the long game. We think, ah, oh, not today. I'll wait my turn. I'll wait my chance. It's very natural, isn't it, to want to avoid getting hurt. When you fall, you know, you're walking along the street and, um, and you sort of trip. And, and, and what happens, you, you, you naturally put your hands down to break your fall. It's the most natural thing in the world. It's almost very hard not to. Well, being a Christian, means being prepared to fall without cushioning. Taking this teaching to heart means all these points under point one are essential. The impossibility of the standard. We've got to look at these standards, we've got to mull on them and meditate on them and realize they're impossible. That drives us to Jesus. B, that's not the end. Driven to Jesus, we display the standards. We need to go public. We adorn it. We have countercultural behavior. It's attractive behavior. But we move to see. We should explain that. We speak the truth. And that will lead to persecution. The teasing, the sidelining, the passing over at promotion, the gossip behind our backs. This is to be expected. In verse 12, look, this is where we'll end as we enjoy our fish and chips. Jesus says, as the persecution comes, rejoice. Pour out your heart in gladness. Rejoice as the fist hits your face. Why? You're walking in the footsteps of the great ones before you. Think of the over 300 that had lost an eye or a limb or had been maimed. And not only them, you're walking in the prophets 
And not only them, you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Rejoice. This is the life that Jesus offers those who would follow him. Five times he reminds us, blessed. This is the blessed life. It's so countercultural, isn't it? There's some stuff to think about over lunch. Why don't I close in a short prayer? Shall I give thanks for lunch as well? Would that be useful? Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for this opportunity just to consider very carefully and deeply what it means to have a, a blessed life, to be on the best possible path in life. We hate the idea of being persecuted. And yet we need to, to be challenged by Jesus' words here and to realise it goes hand in hand with the most privileged, blessed life that there can be. And so as we enjoy food together, um, thanks very much for the provision of food. Um, we do pray that we'll think deeply on these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brilliant. Well, it, it falls on me to explain lunch. And uh, the, the process will be, Rich will arrive with a ridiculous amount of food uh, in there, uh, the foyer. And I think the idea is you pick, pick, pick it up. Um, I did put your name and what you'd ordered uh, in the booklets, just in case you've forgotten, uh, so you don't steal someone else's. Um, and then I think the idea is you grab, you grab um, there'll be condiments and cutlery and things, and then if we use these tables that are dotted around, they'll be used later for discussion, uh, so, so maybe don't smear it in ketchup. <laughs> but uh, yeah, do, do feel free to enjoy uh, the, the food when it arrives. Um, and then I think the plan is, once most of us have eaten uh, a bit, we will then, you can see we're right next to the, this lovely park, which I don't know the name of, Enfield Park probably, and we will <laughs> enjoy, I think, is the weather good enough? It looks pretty alright, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. We'll just get some fresh air, which I think will we'll, we'll walk off the chips a little. Okay, so I think let's break and uh, we'll just wait for the food to arrive. And when's the next session start? That'll be good to know, wouldn't it? Uh, 12.40, uh, 1.30, 1.30, we're back in here.